turn to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, a story familiar to probably virtually everyone in this room. Daniel in the fiery furnace. But it's really a story of keeping cool. It might be a fiery furnace, but it's a furnace that isn't going to touch those who love the Lord. And it's a picture both prophetically of the nation Israel and it's certainly a picture of our lives as believers as well. We all are going to face trial, tribulation, we're going to face fire. And really you might say this is kind of a companion message to this morning because ultimately uh, there isn't a person in this room if you know the Lord, love the Lord, that has not probably already gone through some fiery furnaces but if you haven't, you will. And if you have been through them, you probably will go through a few more. And ultimately, what we find in this passage is true for each one of us. When you walk in faith, when you walk in hope, when you're leaning on the Lord, then every fiery furnace, every storm, every trial, every tribulation is an opportunity for the God of the impossible to show himself faithful in your life. And we can look at fiery furnaces really from one of two different positions. One is the Lord hates me and and he's put me in this because he's angry at me. The other is the Lord loves me and no matter what's in this furnace, God's got a purpose for it. God has a purpose for the fiery furnaces in your life. And and when you get that particular viewpoint locked into your heart and your mind, you're going to find out that life is considerably uh, easier to navigate. Because if you look at every fiery furnace as though God is displeased with you or God's you know, got some kind of grudge against you or somehow you've fallen out of favor with the Lord and you constantly run through these cycles of whether you actually love the Lord, the Lord loves you. And I think one of the things that we learn from this passage is that God allows very difficult, trying, horrible things to happen to people that not only does he love them, but he's actually very proud of them. They're actually being an extreme example of someone who walks by faith, and yet they're going to go through something that seemingly uh, is beyond our imagining. And so you might change this to how to stay cool under fire. Amen? Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we thank you that every fiery furnace has a purpose. Everything that we go through, every trial, every tribulation, every pain, every sorrow, every suffering, Lord, all cancers and broken bones and financial difficulties, Lord, the fires of this life, the storms that you might push us into as you did the disciples, each one of those events is an opportunity for you to show yourself faithful and as we see in this passage not only will you use those things but you'll be in the fire with us and so bless us as we study we ask this in Jesus name amen verse 19 Daniel 3 and then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and so you remember the story as we left it 
Daniel and his three friends have decided that they are not going to bow. They're not going to eat of the king's delicacies. They refuse to defile themselves. They are going to stand when everyone else is going to bow to the world. And so it's good for us to look back so that we understand the context here. There's a reason this furnace is being stoked seven times hotter. There's a reason that they're going to go into this fiery furnace. And from the world's perspective, it is punishment because these three men refuse to bow to the world. And where this becomes important in your life and in my life is when we choose to walk with the Lord, you're going to set yourself up to be tossed into a fiery furnace or two. That's going to be the result of you walking with the Lord. You're going to experience things that are a direct result of you actually doing God's will. Walking in the Spirit, as we saw this morning. When you choose to walk with and for the Lord, you're going to enter into a few fiery furnaces. Because the world is going to hate you for standing for Christ. The enemy is going to try and discourage you and destroy you. He's going to lie about you. And so we pick up the story with Nebuchadnezzar, who's full of fury because these three young men have refused to kowtow to his demands. And the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. I don't know if you've actually thought about, you know, what's going on here, but uh, the closest thing that we might, you know, possibly remember, if you can think back to, if you've ever been out to the California Speedway in Fontana, that used to be the site of the old Kaiser steel mill. Um, Parts of it are still there. It's used mainly for a movie set. Uh, But there in, in that steel mill, there's a Bessemer furnace, and that Bessemer furnace is used to heat up iron Uh, to ultimately near liquid state and in some cases it was liquid state and so you're 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 talking about thousands of degrees fahrenheit and and this particular furnace much like the furnaces that we would have seen probably in the 1800s is an open air furnace there's a hole in the front of it there's a chimney at the top of it And the reason that it would work is that it would draft. And so as the fire was stoked down below, it would create turbulence. That turbulence would suck in. And so this thing literally, when you stood at the mouth of it, would suck you into the furnace. That would be the result of the physics of the fire raging inside and the exhausting of the gases out the top of it. This thing was a blast furnace. And so they decided they heated up 70 times hotter than normal. And we see the results of that in in the remainder of this portion of this chapter. And he commanded that certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, their outer garments, and they were cast into the midst of the fiery furnace. And the reason this is important is they're actually binding these guys. They're wearing the traditional clothing of that day. There's a coat. They're wrapped up. Basically, they are human burritos. They're, they're completely wrapped up, tied up, and their clothes are pinning their arms to their side. 
there is no way to brace themselves for impact when they are cast into this fiery furnace. They are going to fall face first into whatever's on the floor of the furnace, which in this case is more than likely something that uh, we would call charcoal. Bound. And therefore, because of the king's command, and it was urgent, the furnace was exceedingly hot. And I want you to notice this, that the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was so hot that the opening itself was sufficient to kill a human being. So it was a flame like no other flame. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the fiery furnace. Indefensible. It's an impossible situation. And then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he arose in haste and spoke to his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, That's right. True, O king. And look, and he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire. And they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, the governors, the king's counselors, gathered together and they saw that these men on whose bodies the fire had no power the hair of their head was not singed nor were their garments affected not even the smell of the fire was upon them literally how to stay cool under fire job understood this and in fact job in his narrative of his life in the book of job we find job in job chapter one It is said of Job that of all of the men of the earth, there was not a single other person on the planet who was as righteous as Job. Job was not in trouble with God. Job was actually an outstanding example of someone who was on God's team, walking with the Lord. And, And yet what we find as Satan unleashes his fury and goes to God and requests of of God that he would be able to touch Job. It's interesting to me that God stops short of turning over what we believe scripture says is reserved only for God. And that is the issue of life and death. It says you can do anything you want to Job, but you can't kill him. When you're in the hands of God, There is nothing the world can do to you until God says it's time. Nothing. God says in his word that it is appointed unto man once to die and then judgment. God knows when that day is. And so you're not leaving one second sooner. This is a problem for our minds. Because we look at things like the tragic accidents that occur in our society all the time. And while from a human perspective, they are exactly that. They are tragic accidents. There are issues of disease. might be cancer, some form of sickness that 
uh, appears to just sneak up on someone instantaneously. But from God's perspective, he is the one who gives life and he is the one who says when it's time for you to go. And so, like in the issue that we have before us in this fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the same thing with Job. No matter how hot the fire gets, no matter how raging the storm is, no matter how bad the boils are that are on you and the death and destruction that comes upon your family and the loss of everything in your life, because that's Job's story. He was stripped of everything. He went from being the richest man that was in the area at that time to being a man who sat at the city dump with pieces of potsherd, small chunks of pottery, scraping the boils on his body. So much so that his wife walked up to him, why don't you just curse God and die? And yet God still had a plan. And God's plan, exactly as Jeremiah declares, was good, it was not evil, and it provided for Job a future and a hope. And the same is true for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God had a plan for their life. And while the furnace was capable of killing those who were not walking with the Lord, it could do nothing to those who were walking with the Lord. God is the one who determines exactly what we can handle. And as Luke 1.37 says, with God, nothing is impossible. We need to remember that because we're going to get tested. God had another purpose. And God is capable of overruling all of the world's evil to use it for his good purposes in our life, exactly as Romans 8, 28 declares, exactly as Genesis 50 declares to us. Nebuchadnezzar was intensely hot, both the furnace and him himself. And that's the way the world always is. The world's constantly trying to get at us as believers. And as these guys are firmly tied and they're dropped into this furnace, you've got strong soldiers hanging on to them. For all they know, this is going to be instantaneous death, just like it would be for the soldiers that put them in there. But it wasn't. And so there's five things that you can see about how these young men stay cool. First is pretty simple. They weren't in it alone. From the world's perspective, three went in. From God's perspective, there were four. And that is an absolute important truth for us to remember. Sometimes we're tempted to think that we're alone in our trials and our tribulations. But there's not a day that goes by because God's word plainly declares he will never leave us nor will he forsake us, says the Lord. So no matter what you're going through, no matter how hot the furnace is, no matter how rough the storm is, no matter what the trial is, there is always the fourth person with you as well and me. God's always with us. No matter what's happening in your life. Whether you understand it at the moment or don't understand it at the moment. God is always there. He's not distant. He's not a, he's not a blind watchmaker. He just didn't start things going and he steps back and kind of lets the world do its thing. He is present in every moment of every day for everyone. He's always there. 
And for his children, he's attentive to the, the cries of his kids. And, and so when you're going through those difficulties, the Lord is with you. A second truth, because from God's perspective, though they were bound by the world, they were actually not bound. Because in, in a figurative way, they were already in Christ. They were free. And, and whether the cords that bound them were tied tight or whether they were loose or whether they were bound up in some kind of a you know, primitive straight jacket, you know, they're wrapped up tighter than a drum, the, the world is going to try and tie you up, it's going to try and tie me up, it's going to try and tie the church up. But the truth is, no one can bind those whom the Lord has set free. If he set us free, we're free indeed. And nothing the world can do can take that from you. Even if it results in the Lord surrendering us into his care. A third thing. They weren't afraid. They weren't lying down. They were walking around in the fire. Our, our walk is in the hands of the Lord. And no matter what we're going through, the Lord's going to enable us to still accomplish things for his plans and purposes. When, when the going is tough, that doesn't mean that the Lord has just kind of said, well, you know, I'm going to stay out of this one. You kind of handle it yourself. There were four people walking in the fire. Wherever you go, the Lord is walking with you. Whatever the situation you know, sometimes as pastoral staff, we do hospital visits or hospice care. We go by somebody's home who's in those final stages of life. These are not easy things, and it's hard to have words in those moments. But the thing that's a constant reminder for me, for us, as we minister to people who do not have long to, to be on this earth, but they're about to meet the Lord, is that they are going to where he already is. And he is already with them where they are. And so it's just a journey. It's a transition from one place to another place. The Lord is in both. But where we're going is home. So the Lord's walking with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this furnace because he's never absent. He's always with us. So much so that David understood it. If he went to the bowels of hell, the Lord would go there with him. There's no place that you can go to hide your face from the Lord. A fourth thing. As much as it looks like this is the end. And this is really important for us. There are human circumstances that we look at from our human understanding and our human resources and they go, this is the end. There's no way out of this. It's an impossibility. Can I tell you that we serve a God of the impossible? No matter what the situation looks like, no matter how difficult it looks like it may be, God absolutely is able. All four of these guys, including the, the one whom I believe is a Christophany, the Lord himself walking with them, they're all unhurt. The Lord is sufficient for our trials. He's sufficient for the strength that we need. He is a shield from everything. For thou, O Lord, art a shield about us about me about you and the 
fifth thing, that fourth person named in this passage as the son of God by a heathen king. When you're walking with the Lord, even heathen kings recognize the son of God in us, with us. What's going on? They will give glory to the fact there is no explaining this save this is supernatural. The supernatural is the natural for the child of God. Did you ever think about that? The supernatural is our natural existence. As a child of God, we are privy to the supernatural. We don't live the same type of existence that people without Christ live. I talk to people frequently and often that will say things, well, I don't believe in miracles. I only believe in science. And yes, that's from Nacho Libre. But the truth of the matter is, a lot of people think that way. You know, if you can prove it to me, if you can give me a scientific, if we can apply the scientific method to this, if I, it can make it testable and repeatable and verifiable, then I'll believe it. But the fact of the matter is, God is not testable. He can't be repeated. He can't even be completely verified. God is God, and God does what God wants to do. And so we're constantly privy to things that are supernatural. And to that end, God can overrule the natural laws of physics, the things that he's put in place. He is quite capable of creating other dimensions of time and space, doing whatever he needs to do to accomplish his will and purpose. And so we need to be careful not to stick God in the natural box. And I think we as human beings stick God very often into a natural box. And when we do, we diminish God. We make God very tiny because he has to fit into the parameters of what we understand about our natural world and the way it functions. God functions outside of space and time. He can function inside of it, but he dwells outside of it. He created it. He is the uncaused cause of everything else. And so in simple physical terms, that you can't have something that is created to where the cause is less than that which is created. It always has to be greater than. So God is greater than that which he has created, which means he has to be outside of his creation. And so God is able to do anything he wants to do at any time. So in your circumstances and situations, as you live out your life, don't stick God in a naturalistic box. Leave him supernatural. Leave him capable to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. There will be times when the only explanation is God did it. I love the way Nebuchadnezzar responds. He's actually going to make a, a correct assumption of who this is. Whoever this is, the fourth looks like the son of God. Who did he see? I believe he saw Jesus. I think this is a Christophany. I think Jesus, as he declares in and of himself, I will never leave you nor forsake you, says the Lord. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So we know that Christ's character is to be with us. When we make that decision to follow him, he is with us, period. He's, he's not a distant king. The book of Judges sometimes uh, as, he, as the Lord appeared before Samson's parents there in Judges 13, as Melchizedek appears on the plains to Abraham, as Moses encountered 
encountered the angel of Yahweh in Exodus chapter 3, in that same way, this fiery furnace is, is none other than, than Jesus stepping into our time domain. And I think in, a, in an even more pertinent way, as in Matthew 14, Jesus with his disciples, and if you read that whole story, and I would encourage you to do it, verse 22 of, of Matthew 14 says, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. And then he pushed them into a storm. In other words, not only did Jesus know what was going to happen, he may have even been the causative agent of the storm itself because there was a lesson to be learned in the storm. And in this case, there was a lesson to be learned in the furnace. There was just simply a lesson for us to learn about who our God is. And so when we think about this particular passage, it wasn't like the Lord had abandoned them to King Nebuchadnezzar and his thugs. The Lord behind the scenes was still quite capable of manipulating this situation for his plans and purposes. And so the furnace was a place that God could use to, to work in these young Hebrew men's lives. And it's interesting to me that when you think about, remember who their names are, beloved of Yahweh, who is as God, and Yahweh is my help, as they, they end up in this furnace, they're proving exactly who they are. It's very clear that they were the beloved of Yahweh. It was very clear who God is. Mishael. Azariah, before his name was changed to Abednego. His name is Yahweh is my help. And so the world tried to change their names into Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But from God's perspective, he says, no, that's Hananiah the beloved of Yahweh. That's Mishael, who is as God. That's Azariah. Yahweh is my help. And so God knew who they were. No matter what the world does to you, God himself still controls all events. He ultimately is in control of everything. He relinquishes certain amounts of Ability to the enemy, to you, to the world, but he never takes his hand off of you, ever. So because you're going through a trial doesn't mean that God has left you. Doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Doesn't mean that God is not going to be your help anymore. It just simply means that whatever you're going through, God has a plan and a purpose in. You talk about humiliations galore in this particular situation. I mean, imagine that you're these strong soldiers. You're the cream of the crop. You're the king's guards. And you, you bind these three Hebrew young men. And you think you're going to toss them into the fire. And they're going to be instantaneously incinerated. And instead, you're incinerated. And here comes Nebuchadnezzar. And he's looking at a pile of ash in the front of the door. And the guys are inside walking around. Going, this isn't working out the way I thought it would. It's also interesting when you look at the backstory on this. This was the day of the dedication of the giant image that was supposed to represent the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. So here's the king throwing himself a party. He gets upset because these guys won't bow. They are bold enough to stand. 
And God says, look, I'm still in charge here. No matter how big you make your statue, no matter how hot you make your furnace, I'm still in charge. And so just to put a little exclamation point on it, it says, those are your guards. You you might want to sweep that up before somebody steps in it. That exclamation point gets across too. I want you to see this. Notice the confession, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. This is the response of a heathen king seeing three men stand firmly on who God is, what God has said, and what God wants for their lives, walking in the spirit. These are three young men who chose to walk, figuratively speaking, in the spirit. The spirit wasn't given until Pentecost, but in a figurative way, these guys represent exactly what happens to a believer. God's got it, and God's very sufficient for every situation that we're we're gonna be allowed to go through. And the world took notice. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Man, how'd you like to have that on your, as your epitaph, on your tombstone? That's as good as it gets that they should not, that Jeff should not serve nor worship any god except God himself. It's a pretty good epitaph, isn't it? It's also a good way to live your life. It's not just a a thing to die by, it's a thing to live for. I just serve God. God's God under control in my life and in your life. And therefore I make a decree, and I want you to look at this. He goes from being exceedingly hot-headed and a fiery furnace stoked to fry these guys alive to not only recognizing that their God is superior to his gods, plural, little g, and therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut to pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. That is the result of when we stand when others bow. That's the result. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that you aren't going to go through a trial or two. I'm not suggesting to you that there might not have some negative circumstances. What I am suggesting to you, because Scripture plainly declares it, that there is no other God who can deliver like this. When we choose to to stand when others bow, we are giving God an opportunity to use our lives for his glory and so that when the world takes note of what we're doing and how we're doing it, they will say the same thing. There is no God like Jeff's God. Jeff didn't bow. Jeff refused to bow his knee to the world's ways. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. If you look there are five things here that testified either directly or indirectly that that the king testified to that God had sent an angel again that's supernatural 
It wasn't just that, you know, somehow Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had got breathing apparatus and a Nomex suit, you know, that they were, you know, practicing volcanism or something and worshiping in lava. No, God had sent an angel. That's what the world said. That's what the king said. The king testifies that God delivers those who trust in him. There is no God like the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God made Nebuchadnezzar actually change who he boasted in. Because remember, he was boasting in himself. Who can resist me? What are you going to do? If I tell you to do something, you're going to do it. And they said, no, we're not. Remember what he said? He said, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Let me tell you what God. Yahweh, Lord of hosts, will rescue us. You can see it for yourself. The fourth thing is probably the most important of these five. These three men were willing to die, remain true to God, then dishonor the Lord. They were willing to die for their convictions. You know, we, we really don't see that aspect of Christian living in the United States of America much anymore. You see it in other countries, but you don't see it here. Where people are absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ is Lord and they're willing to pay for that testimony with their life. But there are still people dying every single day for that testimony. All over Sudan, Nigeria, Uganda, all over the Arab world. What's going on right now in Syria is the Turkish army along with the forces of the Syrian resistance are entering into the country of Syria, an area that the U.S. formerly was in allegiance with some of the Kurdish people. Those people are going to pay for their faith with their life. We're not bowing. I have a dear friend who's in that region right now. They're ministering to thousands of refugees. And if you talk to them, they'll, they'll say that they, can't even, they cannot even speak what's happened. It's unthinkable. People who just simply named the name of Jesus, burned alive, skinned alive. I think there's a lesson for us to learn. We have a pretty easy road of faith in this country. But it was purchased with an awful lot of people's blood. The testimony that we have is a powerful testimony. And sometimes I wonder if we're willing to die like others are willing to die for our faith. And again, I'm not suggesting that you should die for your faith, but I am saying that it's worth dying for. If that time comes, if we end up in that situation once more, 
Will you be like these men? Do whatever you want. Throw me in a fiery furnace. I refuse to bow. And the fifth thing, there's no other God who's able to deliver this way. You can kind of see God working in Nebuchadnezzar's life through these men. And sometimes people will say, well, you know, we should get more active in politics and those types of things. And while I'll be the first one to tell you, if, if God calls you to do that, please do. We need Christians in politics. I just don't believe that the pulpit is the place for that. But what I would say to you is that your testimony has its way of working into our political system. It is the testimony and the witness of believers that affects government. It is not government that affects believers. It is believers that affects government. We're supposed to have an effect on the kings that we live under. Presidents, Congress, Supreme Court justices our local rulers. They're supposed to see how we live our lives and they're supposed to be able to look at us and go, there's something seriously different about those Christians. This God that they pray to is not some mythical being. He's active in their life and whatever he's doing, you can see it. And the truth of the matter is the Bible plainly declares that ultimately God is going to judge this, judge this earth and every nation. And God is going to judge very specifically this entire world for how it has treated Israel. The Jewish people, these people. These three men represent the, the Jewish people in that sense. And so there's some prophetic application I want to finish with tonight. When you look at this particular chapter and you, you kind of understand it from a Jewish perspective, these three young men really represent as a whole, figuratively speaking, the nation Israel. Because God has preserved that nation time and time and time and time again and no matter what ruler has risen up against it, let me give you a, a name that you all know, Adolf Hitler. It looked like there was no chance that the Jewish people would survive the Holocaust. Zero chance. By some accounts, 87 or so percent of all the Jewish people on the face of the planet Earth perished in the Holocaust. It looked like they were done. It was over. That everything that God had said about his protection of national Israel, the restoring of the nation, was not going to come true. It looked for, for a bit like, well, this must be the great tribulation. This has to be the time that Jesus was speaking about these wars and rumors of wars. And yet, what ultimately happened was Israel did go back into the land exactly as the prophets declared would happen. That prophecy of the valley of dry bones, as Ezekiel says, that I'll, I'll add sinew and muscle and tissue back to this dead skeleton. And I'll bring it back again. And once that happens, no one will ever remove them out of their land. 
That happened on May 14th of 1948. Israel went back into the land. A singular people with a singular DNA that's trackable anywhere in the world. If you have Jewish DNA, it's going to show up on 23andMe and every other Ancestry.com, whatever. It is absolutely a unique DNA. And so here's this tiny little nation that ultimately is going to come one more time into a tremendously fiery furnace, except this time instead of Nebuchadnezzar, it's going to be the Antichrist. In a period that we call the Great Tribulation, described from Revelation 6 to Revelation chapter 19, that miracle nation is going to once again be spared because just exactly as the book, Joel, the book of Joel says, as, as Genesis declares originally in the covenant with Abraham, as Jesus himself said in Matthew 25 in the Olivet Discourse, as scripture presents the Jewish people, the Jewish people are never going to be wiped out. It's going to look like it. And there's going to be a world ruler that's going to come on the scene and that world ruler is going to rise up and he's going to, make, going, to make, going to make a peace treaty with Israel and with Russia, which will involve, by the way, Syria, Turkey, Persia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, Egypt. Ultimately, those nations will rise up and come against this little tiny nation. A nation that's a third of the size of San Bernardino County. That has not even nine million people in it. It's going to look like there's no way they're going to survive. But in the very last day, just like God does in this furnace, he's going to put his hand on 144,000 witnesses and he's going to save them out of the midst of the fire. The apocryphal book of Maccabees gives us a little glimpse of this crazy king, Greek king, Antiochus Epiphanes. He goes into the temple in Jerusalem, 163 BC, slaughters a pig on the altar, desecrates the temple, ceases temple sacrifices, basically forces the Jewish people out of their own temple puts unclean animals, a pig specifically on the altar. Powerful ruler, Greek, followed by the Romans, all the Caesars, followed by the likes of Adolf Hitler and Mussolini, Stalin, Marx, Lenin. Despots around the world trying to wipe out this tiny little nation. And exactly as Ezekiel 12 declares to us, they will know that I am the Lord and I will disperse them among the nations, scatter them through the countries, but I will spare a few of them from the sword, the famine, and the plague so that the nations where they go will acknowledge all their detestable practices and then they will know that I am the Lord. That day's coming. It's still future to us tonight. 
God's protection and preservation of the Jewish people makes them literally a miracle. So much so that when you look back at the history of the Jewish people, they are the least likely nation to be in existence on the face of the earth today. You could give a greater case for Liechtenstein to exist than Israel. At least Liechtenstein has Sinco nail gun factories. You know, they have some fairly substantial infrastructure. But the Jewish people, exactly as the prophet Isaiah said, or in Isaiah 43, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Those words were spoken before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the furnace. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, and I give Egypt for your ransom, and Cush and Sheba for your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you, and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather from the west. And I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them. Bring back my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. Israel is a miracle. The prophet Joel reminds us that the reason that the Lord is going to pour out his wrath during the time of tribulation is very specifically because of how the world has treated Israel and what they've done with the land that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the basic reason for the tribulation. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego actually have a prophetic look for us. This fiery furnace is a preview of the great tribulation. We're going to see when we get to chapter 9, this final 70th 7 that's revealed and recorded in Daniel chapter 9. This time of Jacob's trouble, as Jeremiah 30 declares it. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. A time of Jacob's trouble. And remember, Jacob's name is changed to what? Israel. A time of Israel's trouble. But he, who? Israel. Shall be saved out of it. One day God's going to spare Israel once again from the fiery furnace. He's going to pull them out of that time. As though, as Hebrews 11 says, those who by faith quench the fury of the flames. And it's interesting to me that throughout Israel's history, he has always guided the Jewish people principally with a pillar of fire. 
He was always speaking to them. He spoke to Moses in a burning bush. He spoke to the children of Israel in the wilderness with a pillar of fire. He, he uses those fiery things in our lives, in the Jewish people's lives. And I get into conversations fairly regularly with people who say, well, the world's getting better. Really? And they claim to be Christians, and I have no reason to believe they're not. But I want to tell you something, and I'll give you a little test. Search the Bible and find me a single verse that says the world is going to get better as it gets older. There is not a single verse in all of Scripture that says the world is going to continually get better because we're going to get smarter. We're going to get more technologically advanced. We're going to somehow get kinder. We're going to save more whales and rainforests. And again, I'm for saving whales and rainforests, so don't mistake what I'm saying. But we will not save this earth because it has already been judged by God. It has been weighed in the balances and found wanting. What the world has done to the Jewish people, God has taken stock of. They are the apple of his eye, and one day he is going to extract the price from this world that is due. And until that time, your Bible says this world is actually going to get worse. Now you're saying, wow, you know, I mean, look, we have Tesla. We live in bigger homes. People are wealthier. There's better health. Fewer people are dying of, you know, whatever disease you want to name. The fact of the matter is, none of those things matter. Those are side notes in history. Because ultimately, God himself is going to come back and he is going to make good on what he said. Psalm 2 declares to us, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against the anointed one. Let's break their chains, throw off their fetters. God is going to come back and square away what's going on in this world. Make no mistake about it. And so here Nebuchadnezzar representing, I I believe, a, a fairly decent picture of the antichrist the furnace a picture of the tribulation is yet to come shadrach meshach and abednego a little window into national israel their miraculous survival to this day when you travel with us to israel you're going to find out really quickly it is a tiny country it's minuscule You can drive from one end of Israel to the other end of the Israel on the long axis down the Jordan River Valley in four and a half hours. There are spots where Israel is less than five miles wide. You take the West Bank, which is in the center of national Israel. On one side is 13 miles wide. On the other side is five miles wide. A country. surrounded by their enemies it's kind of a picture of king nebuchadnezzar and his gang isn't it surrounded by their enemies little did king nebuchadnezzar know that that golden image that he erected on the plain of dura would kind of give us a little window into the final dealings 
that God will have on this earth with national Israel. Man has been attempting to unite the whole world through some form of a theocratic reign for a very, very long time. And finally, there is going to be one world ruler who's going to pull it off. His name's going to be the Antichrist. He's going to unite the whole world in their religion, their monetary system, and their government. Interestingly enough, that is exactly what Israel already had with God. They had a singular religion. They worshipped a singular God, a singular monetary system. And they had a government. And that government was the government of God. That's what Israel means. Man's efforts to do that has resulted in Constantine corrupting the church with a state religion. The, the Dark Ages. It is mind-boggling what was done in Europe in the Dark Ages in the name of Christ. It's mind-numbing. Last week we were in the fortress Hohen Salzburg in Salzburg, Austria, and we are in the torture chamber. That torture chamber was used to extract confessions of faith out of people who did not yet believe. They were literally shackled to the walls and their arms ripped off in the name of Christ. That's what a papal religion can do. That's what a ruling bishop does as he sits in his castle on a fortress top uh, on a mountain called the Monchberg, the Monk's Mountain. As they're, they're looking down in the valley and the peasants are firing their primitive weapons and the bishop of the church is responsible for wiping them out. The world's been trying to attack God for a very long time. And Babylon in that way embodies the religious system of man. How we've corrupted a relationship with God that's supposed to be by grace and through faith and turned it into something that God never intended. And so this passage ends really with a shadow of some things to come. That golden image foreshadows Satan's attempt to sidetrack God's plan for the future. The Antichrist, just like Nebuchadnezzar, is going to attempt to make the entire world worship his image. And he's going to set it up in Jerusalem. It'll sound like a great plan. We'll just gather everybody together and we'll all worship the same God. only problem is behind the scenes that's going to be mystery Babylon Babylon's going to rise again Revelation 17 says that that mystery Babylon will be the mother of all prostitutes the abomination of the earth but there's going to be faithful men still in the furnace faithful women in the furnace just as God preserved 7,000 Israelites who didn't bow to Baal in Elijah's day so he will preserve 144,000 Jews during the tribulation. So this passage gives us a little look forward into what is still future. It's going to be interesting. We won't be here to see it. We're coming back with the Lord. When he returns on a white horse, we're coming with him. That's the good news. Amen?
But can you imagine the view from heaven when we come back? And here's the 144,000 unsinged. The Antichrist has poured out his wrath on this earth. By that time, more than three quarters of the world's population will have been wiped out. And here's this little tiny nation, Israel. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it looked impossible. But not only are they standing, they're going to be the ones ruling and reigning with the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar's royal decree provides that that basis of separation that we have to this day. Look, you, you have a choice. You can be a sheep or you can be a goat. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 25. The goats are going to be separated away for destruction and the sheep are going to be forever with the Lord. And so for us, verse 26 is kind of exhilarating. It's like, come here. Come out. You didn't bow. You know, the Bible reminds us that, that one day, some are going to get there as though they went through fire, but we're all going to stand one day before the Lord. Every last one of us is going to give an account. It's going to be revealed by fire. I, I, I'm looking forward to that day, actually. Not in any type of morbid sense, but just knowing that it's grace that's going to get me through that day too. That's why Paul in Romans 5 said our sufferings, we know that they produce perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. And that's why James reminds us there in James 1 that we're to consider it pure joy, brothers, when you face trials, when the, when the furnace is stoked seven times hotter than normal. When you face trials, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The same perseverance Paul's referring to in Romans 5. That that perseverance will finish its work in you and make you mature and complete and lacking nothing. So there's a purpose for your furnace. And it's good. And God's got it. And every believer who perseveres in that testing has the potential of being a bold witness for Christ. And so just like these three young Hebrews, let's keep it cool when the trials come. God's got it, amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have every single furnace covered. Or no matter what we go through, no matter how hot the fire gets, no matter how the world stokes up the heat against us, if we're willing uh, to stand when others bow, uh, we can trust you to rescue us, even miraculously if necessary. God, we thank you for the witness of national Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem tonight. Lord, we ask that you would place upon our rulers' hearts a continued protection of the Jewish people. Lord, you still have a plan for them. You do and will make come to pass your promise that one day, as Paul said in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. Lord, you have a plan for your, your beloved, the apple of your eye, or as Zechariah calls the Jewish people. 
We pray that we'd learn a lesson, Lord, that that no matter what the world throws at us, uh, you're bigger than all that it would throw our way. You're stronger than any fire that they start to try and fry us, Lord. When the world stokes up the heat of trial and tribulation and terror, Lord, would we be able to be cool in the midst of that fire because you're in it with us and you have a plan to deliver us. And we thank you for that truth. Pray that you would bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.